At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The whimsical work of fine art photographer Julie Blackman imagines a dystopian world run by children. An exhibition of photos by Blackman is on view at Jackson Fine Art Gallery, and later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with a photographer whose inspiration draws from rowdy 17th-century tavern scenes by Flemish painters. Plus, speaking of music, our series highlighting local musicians in their own words today features the band Grand Vapids. First, our perceptions of the world usually derive from our lived experiences, backgrounds, and upbringing. For former NBA All-Star author and artist Joe Barry Carroll, height was also a factor. His new exhibition at the Hammonds House Museum, My View from Seven Feet, explores the mystical qualities some want to assign to a person standing seven feet tall. The show is on view through September 18th. Joe Barry Carroll joins me via Zoom with Leatrice L. Z. Wright, Senior Director of Programming at the Apollo Theater in New York and curator of this exhibition at Hammond's House Museum. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you both and to have you together. The title of the show is taken from your book of the same name. Barry, we spoke about my view from seven feet in 2019. What are your earliest memories of people commenting on your height? Uh, I think at some point you're wondering, what are they staring at? I am seven feet tall, for those of you who are not familiar with me. And you're wondering, what are they staring at? when you're like when I entered my teens, because at some point I became tall for anybody's height. You know, initially I was just a big kid. And then it's like, oh, wow, you know, I'm taller than even the adults. So, I mean, it just slowly becomes part of your way of life. Although people think that it just happened. Like I just stepped in a puddle of tall and here I sprang <laughs> and you know, it was a big deal kind of thing. It's, it's a much bigger deal to the observer than it is to, to, to me. You know, but and matter of fact, the title is just me being the smarty pants to draw people in. But once they get in there, they realize that it's really nothing specific to seven feet tall because all of my experiences are, you know, just out of humanity. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing the same life everybody else is. Yeah, I loved reading in an interview with you beforehand, and I'm quoting here, you say, spoiler alert, my view is guided more so by life experiences that we all have in common, not my height. 
Yeah, that's what I try to lean into because I, I don't know that anyone's necessarily interested in me. I mean, my life is like their life. So I mean, I'm not telling them it's not a you know big news alert or anything, but I think if I could share with them some common experiences that we're all having and maybe shed a, a different light on it, it becomes interesting. So how did you arrive at expressing yourself through visual art? I'm not sure. I, I think in these ways. I mean, I think like I'll have an idea and sometimes it uh, will reveal itself to me in an image or I'll see an image and begin to unpack that to see how, you know, that might be articulated. But I'm, I'm really not perfectly clear on how that happens. I'm just glad it does. I mean, I, I want everybody else to enjoy it, but while I'm waiting on them to enjoy it, I'm having a good time myself. <laughs> yeah, you said that each journey into my canvas continues to be a revelation. Yes. Things are revealed to us. I mean, like anything, any experience we have in life, it's always different once we do it. You know, I'll start out with a great idea or what I think is a great idea. I'm in my studio now and I'm looking at a that an idea I had and it's, I really like it, but it's so different than where I started out. And it's kind of a metaphor for us, I guess, in some ways to, you know, how we have to stay open as we move through this, this human experience, because things are just different than we thought they were. Hmm. Leatrice, you have dealt with many artists who have taken a more direct path toward their visual self-expression. What do you think is special about the art of Joe Barry Carroll? I really am struck by how authentic Joe's work is. You know, we started, when I was still at the Hammonds house, we spoke to Joe pre-pandemic about doing an exhibition of his work. And, you know, I really remember at that time being able to delve into the work a little deeper. You know, obviously I'd known Joe you know, as an artist and, you know, the work that he was doing, but, and, you know, we had his books at the Hammond's house, but after we spoke with him and I really started to, you know, kind of just take a deeper dive into the um, text that we had at the museum and really fell in love with the work, you know, not only is it bold, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the pieces are large and the colors are just are bold and draw you in, but the storytelling is what really drew me in. And I grew up in Delaware, but my mother was from Alabama. My father was from Florida. And Joe's work took me back to those summers in Alabama and those, you know, visits to Florida and like those Southern Black communities. And that's where his work carried me. And each time I look at any of the images, I see the people that he depicts in these images. I remember them from these neighborhoods, um, and not just neighborhood, I mean, even my neighborhood growing up, but specifically um, in these Southern neighborhoods. And so there's an authenticity to the work that I really, really appreciate and to the storytelling. I really want to salute Leah on how she pulled all this together. I mean, I have nearly 200 paintings at this point. And to have someone come in and make a genuine effort and an outcome with kind of getting what I intended I told her she nearly made a big old man's eyes leak. It was emotional <laughs> reading her artist statement and then to see how she had laid things out and pulled things together. And she's really a talent. I mean, I feel so fortunate that we came together. We did have a conversation a few years ago and that she came back to me and working with her has just been incredible to have somebody who, you know, they, they get you. And I wanted to also say something about Donna over at the Hammond's house, our big boss over there, and Tara Coit all of us kind of working as a team to bring this together. Because I really don't think, well, I know that no one does anything by themselves. So I want to say that before we get back to me. <laughs> now, now go on. <laughs> okay, I'm going to get back to Leatrice, if Please. I may, Mr. I do, Carroll. I want to. That's how, uh, It was important to me for her to be here because she's so critical of what, to what we're doing. Yeah. She is what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm curious about what influenced your choice of paintings and how you arranged the artwork for this show, Leatrice. You know, the choices, I mean, like Joe said, he has a lot of work. 
And, you know, the choices were really and how we have kind of grouped them is in the way that he tells the story, you know, like, you know, when you walk into the museum and come into the first gallery, it's the people that he knew there. It was Ms. Vi and, and Rose and people that he knew, you know, in his world growing up. And so we first get a look at the people. And then when you walk into the second gallery, it's a little bit more of the experiences you know, over the mantelpiece in the second gallery is a piece called Dandy, which is a gentleman sitting, well-dressed gentleman sitting in a chair, you know, which kind of indicates in his growing up, there were these men in his community, you know, they were well-dressed. They, you know, they may have worked on the railroad or in all these different ways where they were, you know, how they were laborers. However, when that was done, they put on their best clothes, you know? and stepped out and went to visit people and went someplace to, you know, just sit down and have coffee. So, you know, we kind of grouped the, in the way that he was telling the story um, and the way that I imagine the story being told, you know, so it's the people, it's the experiences. We have one gallery, which is really focused on a quilt. Joe was a collector of quilts. His father gave him his first quilt. And so that quilt was too delicate for us to bring to the museum, but we sent a photographer over to shoot it. But out of that quilt, you know, Joe has created a number of pieces that are based in that quilt. And along with those pieces also come recipes because as he was creating his green maiden, he was thinking about collard greens. And so we have also paired the recipes with the artwork so that people will have an opportunity to kind of get a snapshot of those recipes and go home and try them. So we really want people to have a very full experience um, as they are taking in all of this work that Joe Barry Carroll is sharing with us. So the recipes you mentioned, that's part of the wonderful commentary, the stories that accompany each painting in the book. Mm -hmm. Do you include all of the commentary from the book on the walls of the museum with the artwork? Yeah, we, we include excerpts. So not all of the commentary, but we definitely include excerpts because I think it contextualizes the work for the viewer. And so on every gallery card, you will see the excerpt so that people can take a, a, a peek into Joe's mind, you know, as he was creating or that life experience that you were talking about a little earlier because he's dropping gems for us you know, throughout this exhibition. And so, and it goes back to the thoughtfulness in which he, you know, has created work and also that authenticity that I was talking about earlier. Barry, your painting, Mr. Fred, was created in memory of your late father, Frederick Douglass Williams. Would you tell us about that portrait? Even with a self-portrait, it, it will appear like my father because we, we resemble each other quite a bit. And I just wanted to create, uh, there's a layer of something very regal about it because my father was this incredible person. I mean, I, I lost him when I was 10 years old, but he, he gave me a lot of wonderful memories and it's where the storytelling originates, you know, uh, because back then we didn't have a television. So a lot of the evenings after work and whatever free time was spent, you know, communicating and talking, telling stories. I mean, he was an incredible guy. He was what I refer to as undereducated, but incredibly intelligent. He spoke in dialect and this type of, he might be someone you might imagine in an Alice Walker or Zora Neale Hurston novel. But there was never a lack of depth and sensitivity and caring and responsibility with him. So wherever, whenever I write, I'm always trying, insinuating him somewhere. I'm giving him credit because he's, he's, he's part of what made me. Education has nothing to do with intellect or wisdom. I agree. I mean, I just, and that's why I stated as undereducated because it's, it's kind of uh, preliminary to me telling people that, you know, who this man was, that was part of his, his brand, you know. Leatrice mentioned your vivid colors. I'm excited for you to talk about your choice of colors. You use so much yellow and red and they vibrate with intensity. I'm looking at an image of your painting, 
summer in the book. Would you talk about why you're drawn to those particular colors? I jokingly refer to it as because I'm country. You know, we like bright colors uh, and bright things. I like bright colors, and I grew up in Chicago. You may have been in a country part of Chicago, so there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I've always been drawn to these yellows and reds and this type of thing. Even when I try to do, I experiment with different colors, I find myself slowly putting the yellows and the reds back in to complete the composition. Because I think artists, at least this artist, there's a place that you arrive to where you just say, it's settled, this is done. And until I get those bright colors and something meaningful on that board, I don't think it's done for some reason. I don't know if I can fully explain how I came to it. I'm just glad I discovered it. One of your works is even titled with the color. Would you describe yellow and the quote from Shakespeare that goes with it? There's about 10 compositions under that. And <laughs> there's a, actually a, a nude part to this. It was a little too raw. So I went back in and edited a little bit because I always wanted grandmothers to be able to stand with their daughters and their daughters, you know, with their daughters and feel comfortable with what they were watching, that they wouldn't have to explain it away. I'm trying to remember what the, uh, the quote that we have on that, because they've, they've not let me in there yet. Well, it is Shakespeare. Love is not love. Not love, which alters when it alterations fine. Yes. Or bends with the remover to remove? Yes. Yes. For me, it's a commitment and appreciation. How much do we really love someone if there's something that can enter the frame that will eliminate that? It seems to me that if we truly care deeply and committed to someone, that it'll always be there. We may have to adjust to it. We may have to manage how we express that going forward based on some limitation that exists within the relationship. But if it's really love, it's gonna, it'll endure. At least that was my interpretation on it when, when uh, Shakespeare told me. I get it. <laughs> I knew you were mature in years, but I didn't realize it went back that many centuries. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the great thing about great writers is that they, they speak through the centuries because there's very little that's brand new. Whatever we're experiencing in 2022, I'm sure that, you know, it was happening five, 600 years ago, just in a different stage. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with former NBA All-Star author and artist Joe Barry Carroll, along with Hammond's House curator, Leatrice L.C. Wright. Leatrice, you mentioned Ms. Vi, that artwork, earlier in our conversation. What is it about the way Joe Barry Carroll depicts this lady that would enable so many of us to appreciate her? Because we look at her lowest and we remember her in our own neighborhoods. She's Miss Vi for, for Joe, for someone else. She might be Miss Mary, you know, Miss Petunia for someone else. I mean, she, that woman, and you look at her in that image and you see her and you know her and you recognize her. The one thing that I've said about Joe's work is that everyone can find themselves in it. You cannot help but to be drawn in and to be forced to reflect on your own life and reflect on the people that you know, the people that you grew up with, because the people in his work and the his images, they're so familiar. They're so big. The pieces are so large scale that you feel like you can step into the picture with Miss Vi and walk along that road with her. The great challenge on that one is funny because there's, uh, for people who come from the culture or are familiar with the culture, there's a difference between an umbrella and a parasol in terms of the fabric that is made. And you have these beautiful women, especially when they're away from their work garb, that will have these wonderful parasols, multicolored and what have you, that's just kind of keeping that sun off them as they you know, make their errands on a, perhaps on a Saturday or even on uh, making the stroll to church on Sunday. 
But this this is a real person. This is Miss Miss Viola Bennett. She <laughs> lives far beyond the campus. I just have to say it. Well, thank you. And I was hoping you would talk about Sue. Oh. Sue and the story that accompanies that painting. Sue was my, uh, the, my, I call her my, she's not really my dog or my pet. She was my companion for about 11 years. Uh, I decided I was going to get a dog and I named her Sue because she was, uh, that was the name of my, one of my favorite teachers of all time, Sue Hatcher in fifth grade. And Miss Hatcher taught me so much. And I thought having this dog would teach me a lot patience and discipline and and all this and she did it was just a wonderful experience and probably one of the Saturdays of my life when she was no more uh, but her memory I still have her memory I see other people with dogs that look like her and I want to go up and hug them and you actually <laughs> connected with a little girl at one of your artist talks oh yeah the look she came up to me after the talk and she says that she had a dog her dog passed too. And I told her that the dog that I talked to her about had passed, but I, I, I didn't want to make everybody sad. And she told me she understood. And it was, <laughs> it was just a real, it was a real sweet exchange because she was like maybe four feet tall. And, and she's just talking up, showing me her picture. Because in my, in this workshop I do with children, they all get to draw their, some favorite thing out of their lives. And she was showing me her picture and explaining it to me and even consoling me because she understood how hard it was. Oh, <laughs> this was truly art therapy. Oh, it was beautiful. It, it really was lovely. And a matter of fact, the, the painting, because I embed a, um, a copy of a photograph on, into the canvas, onto the board, is uh, just one of those little quiet times where I, set, I, I was seated out on my patio looking out, and, and Sue's there looking out as well, as though we're having some type of communion. <clears throat> You talked about the modest means and the hard work that many of the people you knew in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, growing up, had to do to make ends meet. You even write about poverty, but with no pity. You write about the working poor and pride in work. And I was hoping you would talk about how your artwork celebrates joy and the quieter, though nonetheless important aspects of everyday life. Why you make this your focus rather than the hardships of life. Well, I think we owe it to ourselves I think it's unfortunate if, if all that we can do is create with the misery, misery is going to come soon enough. Hardship will come soon enough. Perhaps we owe it to ourselves to spend some time with the better parts of life because at root, the love that a man has with his woman or parents have with their children or a person has with their pets, their animals, their dogs, that's really the larger part of what life is formed, is made of, and the joy we're going to have. I'm resisting just focusing totally. I mean, I know, I understand why it's done, and I get that, and I leave that to someone else to deal with some of the more dark and desperate parts of our lives, because we all have that. But for me, I'd like to celebrate what life looks like more consistently on every day. And that's with uh, us going about our lives, enjoying the foods we eat, the company we keep, and that type of thing. And that other stuff will take care of itself. I'm looking at the image of the work titled Wagon. Is that little boy, is that face yours? Yes. You're yes. adorable. <laughs> really? I wrote that, I wrote that, I, the essay I put to that was about an early lesson that I learned basically this my mother had given me a, a chore to do and I had charmed the person that I was supposed to do the chore uh, out of me having to do it and and she was just like inconsolable because she just really resented that <laughs> I, my, my mother was I mean I never would I don't know I can't it's hard to explain her <laughs> but it was a mistake to disobey her and uh she was just telling me about being slick because she knew I had been what we call slick 
that I had charmed my other aunt out of doing this work that I was supposed to do. And she didn't appreciate it. And she was like, look, this is not a habit we're going to form. We're not going to do this because this only creates problems. She says, everything, everybody I know that's been slick, it just slides them right into trouble. You can't get around work. And in a major way, I mean, I live with that now. I, I don't take shortcuts with, uh, with the work that I do with my vocation as well as my advocation. There are things that I could get away with because I have a, you know, experience and uh, around certain things, but I don't try to get away with things. It's not enough. I don't think we should build a life based on what we can get away with as much as what is proper and what is appropriate. And that's what I try to do. And a lot of that came out of that, that lesson and still grateful that she didn't put hands on me <laughs> because I've always been a child. I'm always wanting to, you know, an expectation has far more weight, you know, uh, because like my mother's expectations of us became our requirement for ourselves, you know, for us, you know, if she expected something, then we, we accepted that as a requirement. That was the end of it. Some very good values. And yeah, yeah. Litris, how does Joe Barry Carroll's art fit with the mission and vision of Hammond's House? Well, Joe's art very well fits within the mission and vision of Hammond's House. You know, the Hammond's House was created when there were not enough opportunities for African-American artists or artists from the African diaspora to be able to show their work in public spaces. You know, in Atlanta at that time, there was only Clark Atlanta University and Spelman College that had museums. And when the Hammond's House was formed in 1988, those spaces, which are now very public at that time, were actually really, if you were on campus and if you were you know, part of student body or faculty or what have you, um, you were able to engage. And so the Hammond's House Museum was formed for that purpose to provide these opportunities for African-American artists to um, be able to exhibit their work, to build audiences, to tell these stories that are a multitude of stories across, you know, through the lenses of African-American um, people. And so Joe's work fits into that, you know, um, and especially an artist like Joe, who is a self-taught artist, you know, there's so many debates that go on right now in the museum world about self-taught versus, you know, artists with MFAs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that have gone through a particular process. But then on the other hand, we celebrate our vernacular artists, you know, and so where do artists like Joe find a space? And so that is where the Hammond's House comes in, because we can provide spaces for artists like Joe, you know, that may not necessarily find that same space initially, and especially as he is in this, you know, I, I, I see even though Joe has been doing this work for a while, but he's still in this burgeoning space, you know, in his work. And, and the Hammond's House Museum, you know, can help support moving artists like Joe Barry Carroll forward. The Hammond's House always talks about emerging artists, mid-career artists, and the masters. And so there's always a home for artists like Joe Barry Carroll at the Hammond's House Museum. Hammond's House Museum curator Leatrice Elsie Wright and former NBA All-Star author and artist Joe Barry Carroll. My view from seven feet is on view at Hammond's House Museum through September 18th, and more information is on our website, wabe.org org slash City Lights. In a moment, City Lights producer Summer Evans dives into the whimsical world of fine art photographer Julie Blackman. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Julie Blackman's photographs imagine a dystopian world run by children. She draws inspiration from the rowdy tavern scenes of 17th century Dutch and Flemish painters. Her whimsical and meticulously thought-out photographs are on view at the Jackson Fine Art Gallery in the exhibition Metaverse, on view through July 23rd. The fine art photographer recently spoke with City Lights producer Summer Evans and began with explaining the style of Flemish paintings. I mean, I wasn't even familiar with what that was when I was searching for inspiration, probably back 2008 or so. But I came across what now I know to be Dutch genre paintings, which are paintings of everyday life. And, you know, most photographers are looking to other photographers to inspire them. And I had had years of that shooting black and white, but I wanted to switch to color one. And I just was looking at, okay, what other angle could I come at this from? And when I saw the Dutch and Flemish paintings, Jan Steen among them, I was just completely enraptured. Just the everyday moments, the vantage points, the quality of life, and just these ordinary domestic scenes, how even though they were nearly 400 years old, they seemed current and contemporary, actually, in some ways. Just the humor and the chaos and the moments. And it was particularly the tavern scenes that inspired these works. Yeah, taverns or just in domestic settings. So before this period in Dutch painting, most of the art made was religious. But with the break from the monarchist and the Catholic traditions, Dutch art kind of had to reinvent itself at that time. And so they forbade the religious paintings in churches. And so the paintings made by artists at this time started to become a little more secular and just about those everyday moments. Some, you know, pastoral scenes too, but uh, just away from the religious paintings. And I just saw the connection. I saw it as it related to my life and having young kids at the time and often feeling overwhelmed. And a lot of those scenes were just kind of crazy and funny. And they also seemed metaphorical, not just for me as a person and as a mother, but just on the bigger sense of just life, even just politics or whatever, just inspired me like, wow, if I look at it from this angle, just the social commentary or whatever that could unfold from just that perspective. So even though I was a photographer, I started thinking, okay, how can I do my own version of these own paintings and and an updated version of these older paintings? And Mm -hmm. so I started there. When I was looking at your photographs, it kind of reminded me of uh, Sally Mann's work, the uh, photographer who is known for taking candid pictures of her kids. And you mentioned that you used to do black and white. And I just love how you both look at the world of how playful and messy children are. Um, yeah. And you're kind of looking at it through their eyes as well. I thought that was really comparable, your work to hers. And I saw that yeah. in your bio, you admired her work. Compliment. Yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, when I first saw her work back when I was 19 or 20 and my first 
photo one class, I was, I was blown away. And I just, I thought, this is what I want to do after seeing that work. But I had to, you know, I had to figure out how to be me too. So I copied her for a while. And then, I don't know, I had to just, maybe it's the 10,000 hours things, whether you want it to or not, your, your own voice starts coming through. So, but it took a while. Mm -hmm. So you said your children was a big inspiration for this. What inspired you to photograph them in a more fantastical way? rather than just like everyday Instagram mom kind of version? Well, I don't know. It was kind of just by accident. I started getting this work. I was kind of setting them up in a way and almost feeling bad about it. This is, gosh, 15, 17 years ago. And I, I got one piece. It was called Nail Polish. And it, it didn't look like a real environment. It was kind of that fantastical take on real life where this little girl was painting her nails and her mom was in the other room on the phone. And I, it just got me to thinking, why does it have to look exactly like real life? Why can't it be a fantastical take on it? And I started thinking about it. I have a good friend that writes fiction. And, and sometimes we all know this about writing, that fiction can tell the truth more than the truth itself. But it's kind of uh, a stretch to do that with photography just because what people want to think of photography and the history of photography it hasn't lent itself to that but photography is just a medium so sometimes I say I'm, I'm really just an artist working with the medium of photography but I also want to say I mean as much as this work is about childhood and kids I can't deny that it isn't but it's also sometimes the absence of the adults in these crazy and chaotic scenes with kids doing dangerous things that are really just metaphorical for the stress that we are all feeling in today's world. Mm. Do you feel that it's easier to have children as the focal point when talking about those difficult topics? Yeah, I mean, it does. It's, first of all, they just lend themselves to humor. Children do. I mean, they're just, you know, uninhibited and free and they just lend themselves to that and their scale of the small children and how they work much better in illustration too. So it's a combination of things. It's the visual thing. It's a way of kind of stepping back and using them more as a metaphor, but yeah. And it's also a way of looking at dark things in a lighthearted way. Yeah, no, definitely. I can see that for sure. So you said you did this 17 years ago. How old are your children now? Oh, gosh. Well, my youngest is 23 and my oldest is 31. So I had to <laughs> move to using, you know, nieces, nephews and whoever really is just around. Yeah. So not specific <laughs> to family anymore. But yeah, luckily, I live with a lot of potential models right here in the neighborhood because there's so many cousins and they have kids. And so it, that makes it a little easier. But it's it's still every photo shoot is kind of a nightmare. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask about the posing of these setups, being that most of the photographs are of children. What does the setup process entail? Do you give the children free reign or do you try and pose them strategically and then they just kind of take it from there? Yeah, kind of a mix. I mean, I go in with a list of, you know, 10 things I might want to have them do or gosh, I might even have 10 kids there and only use three of them. So I kind of go in there with a plan, but open to what might unfold just on its own. So it's kind of a combination. But then ahead of that is also just finding a setting that I think could be captivating. And most of the time, that's just settings that are already familiar to us. There's a river and a backdrop of a lot of these because we have a cabin down on the Finley River close to where I live. So we're down there a lot. And what area is that? Because I read that these photographs are based around the people and places in your community. Yeah, it's Southwest Missouri. So literally Ozark, Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) This river is going right through Ozark, Missouri. And yeah, sometimes it does live up to the stereotype, but it's also a really beautiful countryside and feel really lucky to be here. I mean, Springfield, Missouri, I say all the time, it's a generic town with a generic name and and kind of the middle of nowhere and a lot of people wouldn't think there's much going on here but I've found that not to be the case and the stories unfold every day before me are just 
so inspiring. And I feel really lucky to have this as a backdrop. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, all the children that are willing to participate, you got a bunch of little models in this community. Yeah, they're crazy and fun and memorable. I mean, like when we did, geez, the Costco shoot right by Costco, a little bit of it is just like, okay, it's better to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission from the parents or from From, costco Costco. okay (laughs) i just wanted to clarify no that'd be really crazy (laughs) but yeah we're just like we'll get the van there we'll wait for the right light and then action if they ask us to leave we'll probably have already gotten it That sounds very chaotic and fun at the same time. Oh, but we got there and the light was too high and it was blinding all the kids. And so I sent them all inside to wait another 45 minutes and gave their moms money for pizza. So I have these videos of there were like seven kids in a cart just <laughs> pushing carts full of kids through Costco just buying time. Aww. That was right before the shoot. Yeah. So yeah, every, every different shoot has its moments of things you remember about that particular one Mm -hmm. and that's nice when you can pay your models with pizza I mean you can't beat that (laughs) (laughs) so going back to the exhibit the title's metaverse how did you come up with this name for the title well I think it just came down to really my daughter's boyfriend brought over an oculus when my sisters and I were sitting around one night it was probably early March and we just hadn't seen it before. So we all took our turn, you know, and it was hilarious with us, you know, we're just watching each other with our hands, like and we're shaking people's hands and giving them five minutes. Like, oh my God, as funny as it was, it still has just seemed like, oh my gosh, this is the apparatus that's just defines where we are right now, right? With everyone at reality. So just what that oculus kind of meant in terms of the metaverse and then on a larger scale maybe a little bit as to suggest politically too but again I kind of like to leave it open-ended and not too heavy-handed with that and then there was something about the word metaverse almost musical and that's where the piano figured in you know I went into it not knowing exactly what would happen but we just uh, went for it and tried a diff- number of different scenarios. And that's the one that ended up kind of working out. Yeah. No, the title seems very appropriate for these photos. Some of the photos were taken in 2020. Did the isolation inspire you to orchestrate some of these wild setups? I saw there were a couple of hidden gems in there, like a discarded mask. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. But in some ways, I felt like I'd been doing like COVID pictures for the last 15 years with everybody doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it kind of worked for me. And then which one had the mask? I'm trying to th- there's a couple of them that had the mask. There was a yard one. It was like from above from an eagle's eye. Oh, view. yeah. The spray paint picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that I really enjoyed that this probably has like a pandemic type symbolism is the bubble photo. Oh, right. Definitely. How did you do that one? <laughs> Well, I just got on Amazon and I, I was kind of looking for kids at a bus stop where somebody has like a bubble, almost like an astronaut over their face or something. I was just going with that idea. And then I thought, wait, there's these giant bubbles you can buy. So I just, within two days, I had that delivered on my porch and, (laughs) but you had to blow it up. I tried like an air pump that was not going to work. So finally we figured out a leaf blower would blow it up. Okay. (laughs) Oh man. But you have the pump right there in the photograph. The pictures of two kids inside of this giant bubble that's surrounding them. And one of them has an apple in their hand. Yeah. Yeah, uh, That was one of those photo shoots too, where it's kind of like, okay, we're going to try this, but if we need to slice the bubble open, here's some scissors in case. <laughs> in case you get stuck in there. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Did the kids enjoy being in there? Uh, mostly not, no. I think that might have been the one shot where the kid was not crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a good trooper. Yeah. Would you describe some of your highlights in this exhibition that you really enjoyed? Probably my favorites in the show would be Metaverse for sure. Fixer Upper was one that's 
I think has to kind of grow on people, but it's a picture of this old falling down house. And I kind of watched its progress as it was renovated. And I mean, just the traffic and cars slowing down, just watching this old carriage house be, you know, make changes every day over a period of probably six or nine months kind of just fascinated me. I don't think it's any accident that that whole HGTV and Fixer Upper show was a hit, you know, at a time we all feel a little bit out of control. And here's a show where it's just like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Look what they're doing. They're changing it. And it's just something we all, I think, needed as a distraction. But I had fun with that one, just doing the the Lowe's boxes, never stop improving and all the details in that. My sister hanging a light fixture. It's not one that kind of stands out like some of my others, but it's just one of those that maybe in terms of the social commentary I'm talking about does that probably. No, it definitely draws you in because there are these little bits and pieces. It kind of reminds me of when you were a kid and you would have that book and you would try to find like, where's the red balloon in the picture book? I spy. Yeah, Yeah, an I spy book. Is that kind of what you're going after? It just came to my mind. Well, it was, but I've had, I've had people tell me that before a lot. So no, that wasn't the goal, but uh, it just happens to be, maybe that's just, maybe I was read I spy books as a kid. I didn't even know it. (laughs) It's in your subconscious. (laughs) Yeah. So Very cool. Well, lastly, Julie, what do you want viewers to take away from these whimsical images? I just think, you know, that it, that's kind of what photography has always done. It doesn't tell you what to think. It leaves you asking more questions than giving you answers. And so I kind of just want it to be a personal thing, what you take away from each picture. Fine art photographer, Julie Blackman. Her exhibition, Metaverse, is on view at Jackson Fine Art Gallery through July 23rd. More information is on our website, wabe.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Austin, and I play guitar in the band Grand Vapids. Our music has been described as thoughtfully executed guitar slow pop, but I think I would just describe it as rock music. Turn it away out of necessity My earliest memories of getting started in music is from listening to Michael Jackson when I was around five, and then in middle school listening to the Beatles anthology on cassette, listening to the different versions of Strawberry Fields over and over again. And I began playing guitar around 16 or 17 in high school. Then later in college, I met my bandmate McKendrick Bearden when we were both studying music at LaGrange College. And we uh, both ended up deferring grad school to move to Athens and started the band that eventually became Grand Vapids. Turning away from years. I never meant to be so expendable. I think what motivates and inspires me is just trying to express a feeling and create a connection in spite of all the awful things that uh, may be happening in the world around us. Um, and also just trying to keep up with McKendrick's songwriting. Um, yeah, it's nice to be inspired and challenged and, and work with someone in, in, in a way that you know keeps you motivated to go deeper and write better. And yeah, I think we, we do a good job of trying to help keep, it, keep each other on our toes in, in our writing process. Atlanta after having lived in Athens for about 10 years to be with my girlfriend during the pandemic. But Atlanta has always had a huge influence on me musically. 
and there are so many great bands from Atlanta that have been a big inspiration. Passing Out is a song about just disassociating in a moment and uh, recognizing that that feeling is, is happening and trying your, uh, your best to force yourself to remain present. We currently don't have any upcoming shows, but we have been recording some. However, there are uh, a couple of our members, McKendrick and uh, Taylor Cotton, playing a band called Hefner, and they are definitely worth keeping an eye on and checking out. And McKendrick Bearden is working on putting out a solo album at uh, some point this year that's incredible and is uh, definitely worth keeping an eye on. Austin Harris from the band Grand Vapids and our series Speaking of Music. More information about Grand Vapids is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Greg Mike tells us about the Outer Space Project. The Art, Music, and Culture Festival includes the creation of 16 new murals in our city. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.